Welcome to Worldview from WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. If you haven't seen some of the videos and pictures from the eruption of the Fuego fire volcano in Guatemala, they are Armageddon-like. There's clouds of gray soot coming down. There's rivers of fire. Guatemala's president has declared three days of mourning for the two dozen dead and counting. We're going to talk now with Nina Jorgensen, who's the founder of an organization called Vamos Adelante. We featured them in the Global Activism Series, and she works with communities that were in the path of the volcano. Thanks for joining us, Nina Jorgensen. Thank you so much. Um, Nina, I wanted to ask, first of all, about uh, what happened to some of the communities you were working with. They got completely knocked out by this volcano? Well, there's particularly one called San Miguel Los Lotos, which is close to El Rodeo and also surrounding a little bit surrounding uh, places that were totally wiped out. It looks like nobody's allowed to go there right now. There is only emergency personnel. But I've heard from friends who have been trying to find family members that there is nothing left. It's so oh, everything is just buried in mud. They didn't find anything, and they're looking for their children, you know, desperately for the family members. And it seems that everything is gone. I cannot go there right now because the bridge, the the big bridge has been blown out, and there's no way of getting there at this point. There's a lot of people who live in the vicinity of this volcano. Um, Where were these people? There's some other people who are apparently higher up in the volcano who are okay. What is that like? Well, we, we're talking about about 12,000 people in that particular area, but this was actually the lava came down. There was a big eruption around one one thirty, I believe. And, you know, when it came down, the, you know, sort of like certain, what are they called, like, you know, like a river, well, sort of like a river, and it just picked up on speed. So the ones that really were hit were the villages further down, much down, actually close to the big highway. Um, On the pictures that have been posted, you can see the big highway, which is paved. And there was one, and it changed pace, and all of a sudden it hit this one little village, and it was just, it came in this whole, it's like a tidal wave, and just basically swept away the the whole village. Now, uh, the, the people who were further up on top of the volcano area, they, they're okay? They're still up there. Oh, yes. Well, actually, they are trapped between different rivers because there's also lava coming down in other rivers. But they are sort of, I mean, they're monitoring this very closely on their own, you know, and, and they're saying, okay, they, are, don't have any, they don't have any electricity. It's really dark. It's cloudy. It's raining a lot of ash. But overall, the lava is going in two different directions at this point. So they feel sort of okay because it's not, head, uh, you know, headed towards their own village. But the, everybody has, like, giraffes looking, you know, where this is going. Nobody knows. Nobody really knows right now. It's rumbling, so we don't know what, what's going to happen. Nobody knows. Now, the volcano is an active volcano, and it, 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 it erupted not so long ago. Did people think that this was going to be a big eruption? Well, it acted up quite quite a bit on Sunday, but it has been doing that before. But nobody was thinking this, I mean, it was going to be that bad. Absolutely not. Yes, it has been acting up before, you know, and there's lava coming down, but it stays pretty much inside the riverbeds, but not like this. I mean, this is this was absolutely, absolutely, in, I mean, so powerful. No chance. I mean, the river, I mean, the, the, the bridges, they just flew, blew away like, you know, like nothing, like matches. 
Now, uh, what do you, what do you, uh, what do the communities think in these situations when something happens? Do they want to stay by their homes or do they want to evacuate? How, what's the thing that goes through people's minds? Well, nobody wants to evacuate in the first place because everybody is afraid that thieves are going to come in there and, and rob the little that they, they own, whether it's a table or maybe a little radio or something like that. But the ones who evacuated, evidently, you know, they survived and the other ones, it seems that many, many died. Um, so, and nobody knows if they will be able to come back. Nobody knows at this point. Uh, there uh, seems to be the, this estimate that there's two, around two dozen dead right now. It, do you think that's oh, no, accurate? No, it's much higher at this point. Yeah. What, what do you, how many do you it's think? Already, uh, the official number right now that we just heard on, the, uh, on, on television was around 40. But I have a pastor who said he was, that's a wild guess. I really don't know, but maybe, you know, like 200. They don't really know. Um, it, I, I might be totally wrong on that one. It was a pastor who had somehow he snuck up there and he looked and he said, everything is gone. All these people that are missing the family members. And he added that up a little bit and he thinks it's at least 200. And, you know, it's so hard to believe that there's so much ash and, uh, things that it's flowing all the way. The ash is coming down in, uh, in different cities around, it, it's a, it must be a, a crazy situation. Well, it is. I mean, you don't really, it's very unpredictable because you just don't know what is, you know, what will continue to happen. I mean, the ash is like glue, but I mean, we are here pretty well. It's the people that are still trapped in there, you know, there. It's the ones that don't know what has happened to their 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 loved ones. You know, they have they have absolutely no idea. The uncertainty, you know, starting to dig to find to find the family members. I mean, that's horrible. I mean, just think about you know what will happen about two or three days a little bit further on when you know they will bury them. It will be horrible. It will be absolutely horrible. What kind of uh, emergency f- facilities does Guatemala have to handle a situation like this? Well, to, they have uh, an organization which is called CONRED. It's a disaster organization that are they're very good on handling disasters. But, you know, they can only do so and so much. And they have the military. They're pretty well trained on situations like that. But that's for the moment. What will happen afterwards, you know, one just doesn't know. And you also don't know how to handle, you know, like a big volcano like that. Suddenly, if it just, you know, starts bursting. I think even for really well-trained people, that's very, very hard to handle because you don't know if you all of a sudden, like what happened yesterday, you have tons of lava coming towards you. I mean, the only thing you can do is basically, you know, run. You can be as well-trained as 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 anybody, but I mean, there's no chance you can do anything that moment. What is going to happen to your organization, Vamos Adelante? You worked in one of the communities that got wiped out. This has uh, got to be really hard to believe. It is. It is. It's horrible. It's absolutely horrible. But at least what we're trying to do right now is to find out, you know, who is alive and um, the ones who are sitting in the relief centers. And we're trying to set up, like, you know, collecting collect money and also stuff for people to so they have the very basics, whether it's a pot or a pan or, you know, flashlights. I mean, the very, very basic things, because these people will have absolutely nothing when they go back. Tin sheets, you know, just to set up a very, very basic little hut, at least, somewhere. You know, because we don't know whether they will be relocated, but they definitely will need help. 
you know, even for food, just anything, just imagine yourself all of a sudden, whoop, you come home to nothing. If people want to do something to help, uh, what should they do? The best thing is really to send a check, donate, so we can actually buy those those particular things. And I would personally, you know, write a letter and tell them what has happened. Because sending items over here, it is very costly, and it's also very difficult to import them here through customs. Now, the Vamos Adelante website is what? It is vamosadelante.org, but it's also it's best to send a check directly to Robert Masterson, who is our treasurer, on 41W655 Main Street Road, Elburn, with an E, Elburn, Illinois, 60119. It's Robert Masterson, Jr., 41W655 Main Street Road, Elburn, Illinois, 60119. Nina Jorgensen is founder and director of Vamos Adelante, and uh, thanks a lot for joining us from Guatemala and talking about the eruption of the Fuego Volcano. Thank you so much, Jerome, for giving us the chance okay, to talk to people about this. Thank you kindly. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. Justin Trudeau has always strongly believed that Canada should develop its oil resources. Last week, he made a huge bet on carbon. Canada nationalized the pipeline owned by Kinder Morgan, the company, to bring oil from the tar sands of Alberta to the ports of British Columbia. The price tag was $4.5 billion. We're going to talk now about Canada's oil and carbon policy with Catherine Harrison. She's a professor of political science at the University of British Columbia. Her focus is on climate change and policy. Thanks for joining us again, Catherine Harrison. It's my pleasure. You know, I don't think a lot of people in the United States really get what the Trans Mountain Pipeline, as it's called, is. Could you explain there? there is a pipeline there now and they want to build another. Could you kind of explain what's going on there? Sure thing. So there is a pipeline called the Trans Mountain Pipeline. It was built in 1953 and it carries 300,000 barrels per day of um, raw oil, um, diluted bitumen, and um, refined oil products in batches from Alberta to the coast. Um, a fraction of that goes down a little a little spur into Washington State. What Trans Mountain is proposing now is called the Trans Mountain Expansion Project, and that would build a second pipeline twice as big. So the expansion would be 590,000 barrels per day, um, again, from the tar sands to the coast. In contrast, that would is expected to entirely export diluted bitumen, um, and all of the product would be exported onto Asia um, is expected. That's the, the the combination of the two of them, the original pipeline and the expansion project, is what the federal government of Canada has committed to purchasing. Is the old pipeline worth anything? I imagine after 60-some years, a pipeline isn't any good anymore, and you've got to get rid of it. Is that why you are want to build a new one? 
Well, interestingly, um, the the old pipeline is getting old, and the there was certain irony that just days before the finance minister announced that the government would buy both the old one and the rights to build a new one, it leaked. Um, it has leaked many times, and I think it will probably leak more often the older it gets. But there is no plan at this point to shut it down. Um, the intention is to keep operating that three hundred thousand barrel per day pipeline and add. Um, a new pipeline twice as big. All right. So if um, the country wants to add this new pipeline, it's making a bet that how many decades into the future Canada will be producing oil from the tar sands? That's a good question. Um, The original business case that Trans Mountain or Kinder Morgan, who owns Trans Mountain, put forward I believe talked about 30 years life for the pipeline. Then when they updated it a couple years later, I think that was down to 20 or 25 years. Interestingly, the finance minister isn't providing a lot of detail to Canadians about the business case um, that they see for uh, purchasing this pipeline on behalf of taxpayers. The finance minister has said it will be a good deal for Canadians, um, but he hasn't said why he thinks that, how long Does he see a market for Canada's heavy oil? Um, How does the price compare with the value of those shipments and so on? We're talking about uh, the Kinder Morgan Pipeline, the Trans Mountain Pipeline with Catherine Harrison from the University of British Columbia. Coming up in a few minutes, I'll be talking with a master sommelier about wine lessons in history and culture. And Catherine, I wanted to... um, Talk a little about what um, the, the the pipeline's um, future is, because uh, it, how it got here. Because Kinder Morgan is a company; it seems like they forced the hand of the government here, and the government had to respond and bought it. Is that um, is that what happened? Pretty much. It's been quite fascinating. Um, the the Trudeau government has been pursuing two very different policy directions, and I think that they are incompatible. On one hand, they have been showing leadership on the international stage um, in helping to negotiate the Paris Agreement, and in particular to um, keeping the possibility of doing more ambitious than 2C alive, working with other countries to phase out coal-fired power, um, and committing to a pretty deep first step reduction, 30% reduction below 2005 levels by 2030, and um, committing to a national carbon price in order to do that. So lots of good news on the climate front. And on the other hand, um, Mr. Trudeau has said that no other country would have all this oil and leave it in the ground and has committed to um, building new pipelines, um, including this one. as, as part of his national policy. And I think this is a moment where Canada has really um, confronted the inconsistency between those policies. But because Mr. Trudeau had taken such a hard line, he had repeatedly said, this pipeline will be built. Um, I think that Kinder Morgan was in an extremely good bargaining position when the politics and the economic uncertainty surrounding their investment um, made them inclined to walk away and protect their investors, they were in a very good position to get a good deal from the government of Canada. All right, just to explain this a little more, Kinder Morgan is a gigantic Houston-based infrastructure uh, fossil fuel thing that um, 
owns this pipeline, the Trans Mountain Pipeline that's there, and has been trying to build this other one for a long time. It's become – they make the argument that it's become so controversial and so hard to build that their investment uh, – and they've invested like a billion dollars in it or something already mm-hmm. – is not – is is not paying off. They're blaming the government of Canada, and they gave them a deadline and everything to to do something about this. Right. Um, I guess it was in April. They said um, we're we don't believe that the political climate is sufficiently secure for us to commit to this project. We'll make a final decision by May thirty first, and um, the government of Alberta, the government of Canada. They kind of reacted like the hair was on fire and, um, and negotiated <laughs> privately with Kinder Morgan for a number of weeks and then early last week announced that the government was buying the pipeline outright for $4.5 billion. Now, that gets them the 65-year-old leaking pipeline, but also the rights to build the new one. And the last estimate we had of the cost of doing that was $7.4 billion, and that was a year or two ago, and the price keeps going up. So I think taxpayers at this point are on the hook for upward of $12 billion. All right. Um, Justin Trudeau does make a strong argument, or he tries to make a strong argument about um, why he wanted the pipeline and why it's a good idea for Canada. And we're going to play a clip of him. Uh, He's being interviewed by Bloomberg in Toronto on May 29th. We strengthened the regulatory framework around the Trans Mountain Expansion Pipeline, did more consultations with Indigenous peoples, uh, strengthened the science and the public consultation, and the government determined that that pipeline was indeed in the national interest. There are 40-some Indigenous communities that have signed cost-benefit agreements with it, and we got the approval of the British Columbia government at the time, and then there was an election in B.C., And the new British Columbia government decided that they wanted to do what they could to try and block that pipeline. And the project became too risky for a commercial entity to go forward with it. So uh, we are now in the position where we've stepped in. We're going to get that pipeline built uh, so that we can get our resources to new markets. What do you make of his argument there? We did our homework. It's in the national interest. We got some indigenous people on our side, and we're, we're going to get this thing done. Well, I, I think there are a number of things that the prime minister is not saying. He refers to the indigenous communities that have signed benefit agreements with Kinder Morgan. Um, not clear whether those will automatically translate to the transfer to the federal government or if they'll have to renegotiate. But I think the more important thing is that Not all Indigenous communities have granted their consent for this pipeline. Um, Several of the coastal First Nations and others inland are in court challenging the federal government's approval and also challenging um, the provincial government of British Columbia's approval of the pipeline. And we're still waiting for those cases. Um, We're also starting to see protest. Um, I think we'll probably see blockades led by Indigenous people when construction begins um, on this pipeline. The second issue is the province of British Columbia, and there was a change in government and a change in heart about the pipeline. Um, BC has um, done what's called a constitutional reference, which is kind of a unique thing that Canada has where either the federal or provincial governments can go to the court's in advance of adopting legislation and ask if the court believes 
that it would pass constitutional approval. So they've they've proposed to regulate the um, tra- uh, transport of bitumen across the province and have asked the courts whether that's constitutional or not. So there's some uncertainty there. Um, and I think the other thing that the prime minister is not talking about is the the uncertainty because of climate change policy, um, both within Canada and in destination countries for the oil, Canada doesn't have a plan to meet our target of a 30% reduction by 2030. And the big challenge there is that emissions from producing oil from the tar sands just keep going up. That's the main source of our emissions growth. It's the reason for the gap in our plan. So, you know, how is he going to square these expanded oil exports with his climate plan. And the other, the flip side of that is if the countries to which Canada is exporting or planning to export that oil get serious about um, climate change under the Paris Agreement, there's uh, every reason to believe that the market for Canada's relatively expensive and relatively carbon-intensive oil will disappear very quickly. Yeah, there the will last, be more the last than enough we, conventional sources. The last time you, we talked, you, you said something that I thought was very heavy. You said it's going to take the rest of the world to put our oil industry out of business here in Canada. That, that, and that's what you're saying. You've got to crush the market before Canada you know, stops delivering this dirty oil to the market. And, you know, I, I've, I believe that even more strongly now because I think we've seen – the lengths that the government of Canada is willing to go, how far out on a limb they're willing to go to double down on Canada's oil production for export. Um, They are in many ways making a bet against the success of the Paris Agreement in committing to um, buying this pipeline and committing to those exports, even as they are part of the Paris negotiations, adopting a carbon tax and so on. So I, I really, the, the most generous um, interpretation I can put on this is that the prime minister is simply accepting it's it's those other countries' responsibility to um, stop buying our oil. And in the meantime, we'll send it to them as long as we can make money. Catherine Harrison is a professor of political science at the University of British Columbia. She specializes in climate change and policy. Thanks a lot for joining us and talking about Canada nationalizing the uh, transnational pipeline. You're very welcome. Coming up after the break, we'll talk about uh, wine and how it can change the way you view the world. I'm Jerome McDonald, and you're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. My next guest believes that wine can change the way you view the world. Emily Wines is a master sommelier. She serves as vice president of wine and beverage experience at Cooper's Hawk Winery and Restaurants. It's great to meet you. It's great to meet you, too. Um, you know, I think we all enjoy wine, and I, have, I am a self-confessed guy who will buy it if it's got a nice truck on it or if it's, uh, you know, I like wine with food and it's terrific. Yeah. Um, there seems to be so many levels and directions that people can take when they uh, enter into the wine world. And... Um, it's super. It seems like it's a super fun thing for everybody. 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, wine is one of those things that, you know, people typically share a bottle of wine. You're having it with dinner around a table. It's very convivial and um, pleasurable. And How yeah. did you get into this? Because you're, you are what we call a master sommelier, and I wouldn't know the difference between a regular sommelier and a master <laughs> sommelier if you, if you told me. But um, uh, how did you find wine? You know, I started out working in restaurants. I think like a lot of people while they're in college, I was working in restaurants and decided that I wanted to work in fancy restaurants where I'd make more tips. And <laughs> fancy restaurants have big wine lists. And I had to learn a little bit more about wine. And the more I learned, the more I just really fell in love, not just with what's in the glass, but also the history and the culture and the stories behind what's in the bottle. And I decided that that was the career path that I wanted to follow. And so eventually you take the test to become a master sommelier, exactly. which is hard. Who gives the test? Uh, the master sommelier exam is given by uh, master sommeliers. It's through, uh, proctored through the court of master sommeliers, and it's purported to be the most difficult exam in the world. And almost nobody yeah. passes it the first time. Is that true? It's true. It's extremely difficult. Yeah. But you passed the first time. I did. You I were did. one of three people in what? The uh, no, the, uh, one of uh, uh, 15 people in the world who have done that. Yeah. All right. So that's yeah. pretty great. We're so you got really good at it in, <laughs> I a, did. in a hurry, I, did. I imagine. And you, yeah. to do that, you've got to be able to, what, taste a region in a glass? Somewhat, yes. Yeah. So there's actually three parts to the exam. The first part is the theory. So it's all the book study, lots of wine law and soil types and geography. That, and then seems, fun. Uh, that seems, I yeah. bet that's funner than it sounds. It's so much fun. Well, I mean, it's not fun for everybody. For me, I really loved it. And it's part of why I, I did so well with it is because I just find it fascinating. Um, and then there's service, which is like being in a restaurant. So talking selling people wine and decanting and opening champagne. And then there's the tasting part, which is uh, within 25 minutes to talk about what a wine looks like, smells like, and tastes like, and be able to identify it by the region and the grape and the vintage. That seems almost impossible. (laughs) (laughs) Do they try to skunk you there? I mean, because there's not at all. (laughs) We're going to talk about the world of wine, and it is everywhere. It 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 really is. It is not. It is not just the places that people always think of. It is global. It's true, and there's new regions emerging all the time, which is which is really exciting, and you know, never never gets stale because there's always something new to talk about. Uh, You have come to work with Cooper's Hawk Winery and Restaurants, yes, which is a bunch of. There's about ten of them in this region. And, mm-hmm. and about 20 more in the Midwest, in the, the, the country or something. And how, to tell us something about them. Yeah, so Cooper's Hawk is, uh, we actually have 31 restaurants now, and we are a winery and restaurant. So we make all of the wines that we serve in our restaurants, and uh, the only place they have our wines is in our restaurants. And we make a really interesting mix of wines, uh, predominantly American, with grapes coming out of California, but we also make wines that are international, and uh, we have an incredible wine club, and we have opportunities to connect with our guests around wine and do things like wine trips, which I think is an incredible way to see the world, is to see it through the lens of what they drink in those places. Oh, that's super fun. What's your favorite wine trip if you had to take a group of people to? Gosh, that's really hard to say. There's there's so many regions that I love, but... Um I do really love Italy. There's a lot of incredible uh, history and heritage and great food and a beautiful place to visit. But uh, there's just so many places. South America is wonderful as well. Uh, even even in my backyard in California, it's an awful lot of fun. I hear people really like going to Cape Town these days. And that the area around yes. there is. Yes. You know, I got some terrific wines. Well, it's amazing. Actually, all over the United States, you'd be amazed at where uh, where wine country is. Like in Texas, the, in the Texas Hill Country, there's a lot of wineries down there as well. It's really quite cool. I 
I was reading the oldest wineries in this country are out of New Mexico or something, New, New Mexico region. Uh, there, are, there are some wineries down there. I don't know if it's the oldest per se, but there are, uh, yeah, there are some wineries down there. It's amazing, like the places that wineries have popped up and, and have been going strong even since before Prohibition. Well, you've brought several wines here, and we're going we're gonna to drink them. Yes. And then, then we're going to talk with people about their global wine experience. And if you want to get in line and talk about great experiences you've had around the world with wine, places you've gone, vineyards, uh, give us a call. We would like to experience it with you at 312-923-9239. 312-923-9239. Um, let's see. What have you got here? Well, I've brought three different wines, a couple of reds that are actually from Cooper's Hawk, and, and a white. I think we should probably start with the white. And uh, th- I brought this wine because it's one that I'm just really excited about right now. It is a um, kind of the quintessential summer wine. Uh, this is a wine that comes from Sicily, or actually more specifically, it comes from this island just south of Sicily called Pantelleria. Ah. And uh, it's a, um, it is a dry muscat, which is very unusual. People think about muscat as being very sweet. And uh, when you can make it bone dry like this, it's incredibly aromatic and bright and fresh. But what, one of the other things I love about this wine is the story behind it. Um, so this is from a producer called Donna Fugata. This is Ligea is the name of this wine. And uh, they, you see when they describe the varietal, they're calling it Zibibo. Um, and Zibibo is muscat, uh, but Zibib was, is the Arabic word for, uh, for raisin. And the island of Pantelleria, when the Moors were down in that part of the world, uh, they, that was a place that was famous for raisins. And then after the, after the Moors left and when there was no longer Muslim, who wouldn't drink wine, the, all the pagans came in and said, let's ferment this and make wine. And so the Zabibo grape is very famous down there, but we know it as Muscat. That is some deep history. Yes. Uh, how much wine can they make? it? This must be a small place. Uh, this is it's a, a tiny, tiny, tiny place. Little tiny volcanic windswept island, and the whole thing is covered by these little scruffy Muscat vines that are, are grown really low to the ground because it's so windy. And, um, and it's, you know, it's one of the primary industries in that area besides fishing. The um, microclimates mm-hmm. must be so important to wine. And that, that must be super fun environmentally to think about. Um, like here is this little island and they've yes. got their own little taste, their own nook. Right. And it's really about climate. Yeah, absolutely. Cl- climate plays it plays a really big factor, and you can have the same grape grown in very different parts of the world that taste completely different, whether it be cooler or warmer or um, whether there's a lot of rain or not very much rain. Yeah, it's it's fascinating. Well, let's drink some of this. Yes, it's like having let's. a little piece of this Sicilian place in a in a glass. Yes. Mm. As you can see, it's very perfumey. It's yeah, very floral. I like the dry stuff. I love Me it. Me too. Me too. Um, are pe- yeah. Do people have a hard time finding dry white wines at this time of year? Uh, people, uh, most of it seems like mostly sweet out there. You see an awful lot of sweet, especially with grapes like this. Things like a Riesling. Muscat, Gewürztraminer, people always associate those with being sweet, which is, you see a lot of that out there because a lot of Americans tend to prefer those on the sweeter side. Although in Europe, you actually find quite a few examples of these made bone dry, and this is a category of wines I'm really excited about. So you can find them at great wine shops. You just have to look for them. I bought a dry Riesling not too long ago. They're wonderful, aren't they? Yeah, they're they're, they're like, you know, it's not as sweet. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. It's sort of electric. They have this brilliant acidity, but this really intense flavor. And this is delicious. This is yeah. unbelievable. Uh, all right. So hats off to this little 
island outside of yes. Sicily that is making this. Um, on to the others. What, what else yeah, do you Yeah, so the there? others I have here are um, – these are, are other wines from <laughs> – I don't Other... want to give up my my, my Sicilian <laughs> glass. I, I know. Well, you you have two choices. You could either drink it or um, wait and drink one of these later. Um, so the other wines that That's I have here—that's the whole hard part about wine. I never it got, is. You, you know, kind of when you're tasting and everything, you feel like you're wasting it a little bit. I know. People always are amazed when I talk about wine professionally and and uh, having to spit but you know it it's it's a pretty critical part of of what I do because if I didn't spit everything there's no way I'd stay sober enough to even talk about it let alone think about it and write about it and there study you go. it so um, um, what's this? So this is a wine that's called Falco and this was uh, this is from Cooper's Hawk this is one of our wines of the month from a couple of months ago and this was a really fun wine. Falco is actually the Portuguese word for hawk, which is pretty appropriate for a company called Cooper's Hawk. And the, um, the Falco is a, is a Portuguese wine that comes from a part of Portugal way off to the east and in the south that's most famous for cork. In fact, m- the majority of the corks from, for all of the world come out of this part of oh, Portugal. No but it's extremely hot, um, very, very warm area. And so when you taste this, you'll see it's very rich, very juicy, very jammy. So there's a thing about climate really playing into the wine. And, and that level of ripeness just gives you this just really approachable, very friendly style wine, which I think... You know, when it comes to people wanting to explore other regions who are very accustomed to American wines, I think Portugal is a great place to go to because there's just incredible values. And because it's so warm there, you get these really approachable styles of wine. That's really terrific. That's Isn't that a, delicious? That's a, that's a totally yeah. delicious wine. I would be so happy if I bought that. <laughs> but, Absolutely. But I'm out there buying the one with a bicycle or a truck on it. <laughs> and that's okay, too. <laughs> you know, I always say that, you know, if you if you know what you like, you are already an expert in wine because nobody can tell you what you like. So you start out with the wines you like, and then you can kind of branch out from there. All right. So great values in Portugal. I, I, I tend to think I that's what I do in the wine sections. I to, go to mm-hmm. the countries that are not – I'm not going to France and California. I'm yeah. I'm going to go run around the, the other sections that are uh, a little more approachable and get something good, I hope. Absolutely. Well, one of the things that's exciting about the, the wine world right now is that there are some of these places like Bordeaux uh, that are very famous. They've been around for a long time. The wines have gotten expensive because they're, they're almost like a luxury commodity. But then you have these little regions, places like this part of Sicily or this part of Portugal, where um, they're really kind of emerging wine regions, even though they've been around forever. People drank those wines locally for centuries, and it's only been recently that they started to really kind of up the game in winemaking, make better quality wines, and find ways to actually market them outside of the country. And uh, this is some great things to find like this around there. Well, um, you know, why don't we take a break, and then we'll start taking some phone calls and continue drinking the other wines that we have here. That sounds great. And it'll great. be super fun. Okay. Uh, I'm talking with Emily Wines. She's a master sommelier, and she is a vice president at Cooper's Hawk Winery and Restaurants. And we're going to take your phone calls and talk about your great global wine experiences. The number is 312-923-9239. If you've had a great glass of wine somewhere that you think brought the region home to you, or if you've been to vineyards abroad and want to share an experience uh, traveling to vineyards abroad, that would be terrific. 312-923-9239. I'm Jerome McDonald. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ.
This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonnell. We're talking about how wines can change how you view the world with Emily Wines. She's a master sommelier and is a vice president at Cooper's Hawk Winery and Restaurants. Um, your name, come on. <laughs> you were born to do it's it, It's always right? the first question I get. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, we're uh, tasting a couple wines and we are dropping in. We're going to take some phone calls from people and get your thoughts and ideas about great places. You've had glasses of wine. The number is 312-923-9239. We're talking about uh, your great global wine experiences, 312-923-9239. All right. Um, wh- why don't we take a phone call right off the bat here? Uh, Carrie, you're on WBEZ. Hello. So I loved the wines that I had when I lived in southern Spain in Andalusia. So yeah. I loved what the, I loved what the guest was saying earlier about finding what you like and branching out. So knowing that I love a full-bodied, heavy wine, and I love southern Spanish wines, where would I branch out? Where should I go? Oh, there's lots of wines you could go for. I mean, first of all, back to the our talk, talking about climate, that's a, a part of the world that's pretty warm. So I would focus on wine regions that are, are similar to that, that are very arid and very hot. Um, so Portugal, great place too. Um, very similar grape varietals that you would find in southern Spain. Um, you could try the south of France, probably not quite as rich in, in terms of the wines. And in the New World, places like Australia, you'll get some really incredible, um, incredible wines. In particular, in, in Spain, you find a lot of garnacha which is also known as Grenache um, in other parts of the world. So try, try an Australian Grenache. I think you might find that to be an interesting alternative. Carrie, did you have a favorite wine and food pairing while you were in Spain? You know, I wish I had, but I was only a sophomore in college. So. <laughs> Chicken pot pie <laughs> yeah, and exactly. Spanish wine. Bread and cheese and wine. <laughs> now that I'm 35, I wish I could go back and do it again. You can. <laughs> you oh, should have. Three kids. Three kids, not yet. <laughs> okay. Well, good luck. Thank you. Uh, so is there something about the f- when you e- eat food and wine together in a place? Uh, should you be eating the food of the place to kind of get the full impact? Absolutely. And I always say that when you travel, you've got to eat the local food and drink the local wine because they're, it's really a part of their culture and their heritage in those places. And there's also, I think there's really something to be said about wines that are, you know, being raised side by side with the cuisine over hundreds of years, they have a natural affinity to, for one another. It's like if it grows together, it goes together. Um, why don't we sweep in and have some more wine here? You've got a bottle a of something idea. called Super Tuscan. Yes, Which exactly. is a very friendly name for a wine. It <laughs> is. Like, super is generally not the word in front of whatever wine yeah. it is. Oops. Pass you the bottle here. And uh, yeah, so Super Tuscans are, are uh, it's a category of wine that's become really popular in the United States. It's a, um, and it kind of has an interesting story behind it. You know, Tuscany is a place that's been very famous for uh, – Wines like Chianti, very traditional old wines. And over time, people started to think of Chianti as being this wine that, uh, you know, it came in the bottle with the wicker on the outside. Yeah. And when you're done with it, you Melted put a can on the top. Exactly. And and it kind of lost some of its cachet. And at the same time, the regulations for Chianti were so strict. There was a lot of Tuscan winemakers that were like, I'm not going to follow the rules to make this the highest classified wine of, of Tuscany. I'm going to make whatever I want. I'm not even going to plant it in, within the boundaries of, of Chianti. And they started growing things like the local Sangiovese varietal and blending it with things like Cabernet Sauvignon and Merlot and Syrah. 
which come out of France. So totally breaking the rules, which means that the wine was considered just table wine. It was completely unclassified, but yet these wines were really incredible and dynamic and powerful and rich, and they were getting big scores and fetching higher prices. And they got dubbed uh, Super Tuscans in the press. So So. people shouldn't be afraid of blended wines. Not at all. Not at all. You know what I say is, uh, you know, a single varietal is great. You taste Cabernet Sauvignon by itself. It's sort of like listening to a cello by itself. But sometimes you want to hear a cello in an orchestra. So there's sort of two different ways to experience the wines, and blends are, are wonderful. We're talking about wines with Emily Wines, a master sommelier, and we're taking a few phone calls at 312-923-9239 about your global wine experiences. And let's hear from Paul. You're on WBEZ. Yes. Uh, I was wondering if uh, Emily uh, can uh, tell us if uh, Frankenwein, which I used to drink while working in uh, in Germany, in Frankfurt, uh, which is commonly found at our restaurants, and I have not been able to find it in the U.S. It is a very uh, bone-dry white wine, uh, uh, mostly in the, in the uh, southern part of Germany where it is grown. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the Franken the, the makes some wonderful wines. Most likely the dry white wine that you had is a grape variety, variety called Silvaner. And um, the really interesting thing about the uh, Franken is that the wines often come in this really unique style bottle uh, called the Boxbeutel, which is sort of this round, flat, flask-shaped bottle. It's very unique to that region. Um, the wines are out there. They are harder to find, but they absolutely do come over to the United States. Again, you'd probably want to look for a, a wine shop that has a little bit more, specializes more in German wines. Did you have a favorite meal to drink that with? Yeah, with Schweinshaxen, for example, which is a very typical, uh, just, uh, you know, the pork chank. Uh, I really oh, like yeah. That. Or Kasslerippchen, you know, that type of food. That's a perfect combination. So when you were there, did you have any, um, any Spargel? Uh, yes, I did. <laughs> I enjoyed that, yes. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, white asparagus in Germany, for me, that's just one of the quintessential combinations with uh, with German wines like Sylvaner. Oh, this is asparagus season. We should be, we should be knocking that back. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. What's a spargel? Yeah, particular in the round, it's yeah, asparagus. Spargel? But white asparagus. asparagus. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> particular around, um, you know, the May, uh, May, June time is when these uh, sparkle come out, you know, uh, quite the supply then at that time. Do you miss the German wine scene? Uh, yes, I do, because, uh, you know, as Emily was explaining, uh, you were explaining that, you know, by an evening meal, you know, you typically have wine there, and it's maybe not as common here. Um, well, you know, we're going to change that. We're going to change <laughs> that right now. <laughs> it's good. <laughs> Thanks a lot for joining us. Yeah, thank you. Bye-bye. Uh, let's take another call. Abby is in Forest Park. Hello. Hi, Abby. Thank you for having me. Do you have a wine experience you'd like to share? I do. So I just wanted to share how when I was in fifth grade, we actually moved to France, the Vouvray, city of Vouvray in the Loire region. They didn't let you drink, did they? (laughs) uh, Only a couple sips every once in a while. (laughs) It's France. Everyone drinks. (laughs) Yeah. I I I have such great memories of driving to school each morning and being surrounded by the vineyards. Um, just everywhere that you could see. And now as an adult, uh, getting to enjoy those dry and sweet white wines from that region just brings back so many great memories. 
Oh, that is such a special part of the world. Really beautiful, wonderful history. Um, I love the Loire Valley. There's a real diversity of wine styles, but also some really great food too. Yeah. Do your parents do your parents associate this time with a particular wine or anything that they 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 they, they lived there? They were they were drinking a lot of this wine. Um, not too much. I think my mom was had her hands full with us three kids, but <laughs> you know now now as a family, all of us are are of drinking age here in the United States. And we do like to open up the bottles of white wine from that area and just talk about stories and all the amazing food that we were able to eat during that year and meet the people we met and the vineyards we went to go visit. That's wonderful. You know, Vouvray is also really great aged. If you, if you can manage to save, save a bottle for a few years of the sweeter ones in particular, they're just wonderful. All right. Thanks a lot for joining us, Abby. Thank you. Let's go to another call. Uh, Karen, you're on WBEZ. Hi. Yes. Uh, first of all, um, I spent some time in the northwest of our country, and I thought Oregon had some great white wines, and Washington had some great reds. I don't know how you think they compare to other places. But I, I, the issue of tannins comes up a lot when I drink wine with people, and I just wondered what your comments were on tannins and how they affect the taste of the wine or whatever. What, what do tannins do? Thanks. Well, um, a couple things. I'm actually from the Pacific Northwest myself. I grew up in Washington State, and I think the wines are great. I agree. Uh, Oregon, too. Uh, beautiful Pinot Noir, Pinot Gris. Our last guest was from British Columbia. They're not doing ah, too bad themselves, No, that's true. There's some great wines up there, particularly, uh, yeah, right up in the Okanagan Valley area. It's quite, quite good. Um, so tannins you'll only find in red wines because the tannins actually come from the skins of the grapes. And when they soak those skins in order to extract all the color, they also get the tannins. And uh, the riper a wine is, the softer those tannins are. But the tannins are what give the wine a lot of structure and, and texture. They can make them, give them kind of that grippy texture that's almost like, like velvet or, or sandpaper, okay? Any, anywhere in that range of textures. Let's slip in another phone call here. Christine, you're on WBEZ. Christina, uh, I'm Italian. Yes, I'm Italian. So Christina is the pronunciation. I'm from Umbria, so I grew up with, uh, yes, a whole barrage of good wines. And, uh, you know, I never really thought about wines. They were just part of our uh, life. I love that about Italians. (laughs) (laughs) Then I came to America. Then I married an Indian gentleman. And I started traveling to India. So in the last five years, I would say we have started adventuring with Indian wines. Mm-hmm. We tried particularly a sparkling one by a maker called Sula. Yes, I'm it very was, familiar with Sula. Yeah, so I was wondering. I thought it was nice, especially with the Indian food. I was mm-hmm. wondering what is uh, your expert opinion. I'm no expert, and neither is my husband. <laughs> about these Indian wines? You know, I haven't had a whole lot of Indian wines. Um, Sula's the, really the main one that I've, I see in the United States. But one of the things I love about those wines, uh, particularly from, from that producer, is that they have a lot of acidity and they're very aromatic and they just go really nicely with the cuisine. And, you know, Indian food has so many intense flavors. You need a wine that uh, is bright and refreshing and, and uh, doesn't compete, but also is uh, just sort of mouth-watering and palate cleansing. All right. Does your husband... Um know much about the Indian wine industry? How much How much of it is there? What's What's going on there? Well, no, he doesn't know much. In fact, at this point, he didn't know anything about wines, period, until he met me so much <laughs> later in life. So first I have to enlighten him about Italian wines. And 
I was always skeptical, <laughs> but tell you the truth about Indian wines. Besides, it's so hot there. You don't really feel like drinking wines. But then we ventured, and uh, it seemed this is the only maker we know of. But I know there is many more now, and I was surprised that they could actually have, you know, the wines in, in such a climate. So I, I'm... yeah. Well, you know what? The reason that they can do that is that they're growing them at higher altitude. So it's it's cooler up there. I, and typically, yes, India is way too warm. But at, at altitude, they, they do pretty well with wines. Yes, uh, yes. In fact, the, the latitude is a little scary, but they seem to be doing a good job. I wonder what's next, olive oil? <laughs> Who knows? <laughs> there, there you go. Yes. Thanks, for, thanks very much for calling. Uh, yes. Emily, for people who want more information about wine and want to know something about Cooper's Hawk Winery, where you brought these fine wines from, what do they know? What do they do? Well, to learn more about Cooper's Hawk, you can go to um, chwinery.com, and that's uh, that's our website for Cooper's Hawk, and you can see all of the wines that we offer there, but also see what our restaurant experience is about, and the wine club, and the wine trips, and all of that fun stuff. All right. We're going to tweet the labels out on these wines, and there's a whole universe. I have not gotten into the um, the apps on wines. But it seems to be revolutionizing the wine industry as we know. Know what so I mean? True. My 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 young nieces and nephews all all walk up to every bottle of wine and label it. Yes, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's true. I mean, that's you know, there are some wine apps that are really great for just sort of cataloging what you're drinking so that you can reference it later, or you can look them up and see where to buy them, or or kind of what the scores are. Yeah, there's lots of great ways you can interface with wine. All right. Well, we'll have to do this again soon, Emily. I would love that. And it would be super fun. Emily Wines is a master sommelier. She serves as vice president of wine and beverage experience at Cooper's Hawk Winery and Restaurants. Thanks a lot for joining us and talking wine and bringing a few in with us. Cheers. Tomorrow on Worldview, we are going to talk about Robert F. Kennedy with Vijay Prashad. It is the 50th anniversary of his assassination. We will reflect on his reputation these days. Worldview is produced by Steve Bynum and Julian Haida. Thanks to Galilee Abdullah and Anna Waters for production assistance. Thanks to Mike Gilmore for engineering. Thanks to Daniel Musisi for curating our music. I'm Jerome McDonald. You've been listening to Worldview from WBEZ. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR.